everyone. Welcome to the Glitch Text Rewatch podcast. We are so excited to have you joining us for our very first episode. This is season one, episode one, Age of Hinobi. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger, and we have not one, not two, but three amazing guests with us today. Uh, please go ahead and introduce yourselves. All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Eric Robles, and I am the co-creator and executive producer of Glitch Text. I am Dan Milano. I am the other co-creator, co-executive producer of Glitch Text, and I also play Bit. I am Gabe Swore. I'm an executive producer, but not on this show. I was actually a consultant on this show really early on in development, so I'm glad that these guys asked me to be a part of this. So glad to have all of you here. So for those at home, I mean, this is just very exciting, not only for me, but for everybody listening, because you know, you guys are the brain trust behind the show. So I know that you've said it in other interviews before, but I just have to have this here. So just if you can briefly, just what was the impetus for the show? What was it that made you go, yes, this is the show that we want to work on. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to um, a time where Nickelodeon allowed uh, us to have overall deals and develop and say like, hey, what do you guys want to create? And, you know, when given that kind of freedom, sometimes we freeze. We're like, oh, God, <laughs> I'm not used to this kind of freedom. So I think at that time, I think, you know, we were all just developing and coming up with ideas that, you know, we wanted to play with. So that kind of freedom was is very rare in animation. So so we were very excited. And at the time, I was developing different ideas, different properties. But at the same time, like artists that we are, we usually have something playing in the background. And at that time, I was watching a lot of the reruns of the Real Ghostbusters, the 1980s animated series, the Real Ghostbusters. And I had those playing in the background. And I grew up watching those as a kid. I love those things. I, I love the tone of them. I love the comedy, the tone. It was like a perfect mixture of comedy and some horror. And some of those episodes were super dark. And I was like, man, I just wish that Sony would just make more of these. And this was prior to me even knowing that they were going to do a, like another a reboot of the movies themselves. But I was like, man, I wish Sony would just make more of these. It, it would be so great to see an anime series. And since I'm at Nickelodeon, I'm not going to Sony anytime soon. So what if I just came up with like my own version? If I can't work at Sony and do Ghostbusters, what if I just kind of create my own version of this series? And that's when I basically got the peanut butter and chocolate idea of video games that come out of your television set and what would happen if something like this would happen, if these things would glitch, if your console would glitch, uh, allowing these things to rip out of your television set. Games and ghost busting, those are the yeah. two flavors. <laughs> and uh, that's, that, you know, I said, you know, who would take care of these? And the idea of like a geek squad coming to take care of these things kind of came to mind. And that's kind of what, what started this whole crazy uh, idea of Glitch Text. I was in development at the same time and Dan showed up and he's the guy who has the ultimate Ghostbuster setup in his office where he had like <laughs> the backpack and like the whole firehouse and everything. And for some reason, these guys just clicked. It was really weird, I don't know why. <laughs> Well, you know, it was perfect because Dan and I had worked on uh, another show called Monkey Quest. We were developing it together. And because we had such a great working relationship, 
he was the first person that I had sent this kind of like script outline thing that I had put together of what glitch checks uh, could have been. And I had sent it out to Dan and uh, in typical Dan fashion, I'll let him kind of like get into this, but typical Dan fashion, like you send him like one idea, he'll come back with 40 ideas to, on top of yours. So Dan, why don't you take it from there? I do love to bounce off ideas with people and just talk and ask a lot of questions. And that leads to answers, whether you use them or not, they sort of have a way of expanding the content. But this was a special case. This was something that when he mentioned it to me, it connected to something I've dreamt of my whole life. Ghostbusters was very influential to me because I was a kid who was kind of afraid of horror films, but I loved comedies and this bridged that gap for me and sort of empowered me to face these things that were scary and was funny and kind of bigger than life, but it seemed attainable. I grew up on Long Island. I had been to New York. So I had was seeing these locations I'd been to with the supernatural component kind of laid over it. And so it spoke to me as something that felt real. So I was that kid who at 12 years old was making home videos where I had a vacuum cleaner strapped to my back and was pretending to chase ghosts. And, and then when I was in school and started becoming interested in writing, you know, when I was bored in class, I would either literally write down the words from the Ghostbusters movie as a script in my notebook, or I would start writing sequels. So I was playing a role-playing game that let you have your own franchise, pen and paper dice game. So this world is something that I'd been really excited about. And I, of course, loved the cartoon. So when Eric brought it up, I had a whole lifetime's worth of ideas that kind of spewed out. And they were just really recommendations. I was so excited he might do this show. And I wanted to see it so badly. So I just said, here's everything I've ever thought of conceptually, and I'd love to see you build on this. And the focus of that was the idea that it would be a chain store with glitch tech teams all across the world and you know that we would just be following the story of one team and but he already had the concept of hanobi of the techs he had five and his partner eight bit who became bit and miko was a, a customer who became a glitch tech in our version so he had a lot already in place and then i was brought in on an overall so gabe myself scott kramer who plays phil Chris and Ricky, who created Pinky Malinky, so many of us and Eric were in this overall deal situation where we would confer with one another. Mm -hmm. And we just started to share these ideas like crazy. And people gravitated toward us either out of their love of video games or Ghostbusters. Like Gabe said, I had like a full prop replica proton pack in my office. And since I was the new kid at Nickelodeon, I met a lot of people who just wandered into my office when they saw that pack. People wanted to try it on. And that's how I kind of came to know half of the people I met at, at Nickelodeon. He's, like, a, he's a cool kid that had the cool toys. It was an icebreaker. Yeah. You know, <laughs> people just poke their head in like, hmm? Hey, uh, could I, uh, could Is that I... a proton pack? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you, want, you can try it on. Here, give me your camera. <laughs> I love it. That's so the key Dan. to making toys at a new office, just have an office filled with cool things. 
have people yeah, that come to you. It's a lot of work to bring them in and bring them out when you're setting up an office. But I think it's great because you do walk the halls and you look in people's offices and you kind of see a little snippet, not necessarily of who they are, but certainly what they're influenced by. And we're all there for one reason or another, something, you know, in our childhoods inspired us. So it was always really interesting to connect with people based on their interests. That's how I met Dan too. Like he, he came in and I tried on the proton pack and <laughs> I still have the picture I posted <laughs> on Instagram. But like, yeah, I mean, it was funny because I was the video game guru or whatever at Nickelodeon at the time. And people just come to me and say, okay, what are you playing? Like, what do you think of this? Or what do you think of that? And it was great. I love games. I love old school games, especially. And that's why I was drawn to it. Cause like, as soon as Eric says it's glitched video games, it's so cool. It's such a cool concept, you know? And and then the Ghostbusters thing, I was, I'm just like Dan and Eric too. I loved the real Ghostbusters growing up. And my brother and I would just watch it every single day, every day. We just loved that show, loved it. So, so those good. two things together, it's like perfect. It's like Eric's an awesome creator that he could just like throw these things together. That's the easy part, but the hard part is just like getting in and getting it to work. That's what really defines a creator. It's the hard work behind that because anyone can come up with like oh it'd be really cool if you do like video games Ghostbusters. but no one can execute it you yeah know what I mean? so and that, that's what development is you're molding this thing that you kind of don't know what it is and it, it's like sculpting i guess it's like sculpting because you don't you start with this block of nothing and then you kind of form the shape you know that's, that's a perfect great analogy. example yeah it, it is sculpting because you know you're chipping away at it and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't sometimes you got to put clay back on you know that you chipped away <laughs> and it, it is it's just the mess until you start seeing some beauty in, in it if you're lucky enough that it does come together because a lot of times i mean i you know i can tell you that i had at least four to five different ideas prior to glitch text that I was like, oh, this could be really cool. And then they just don't come together, right? So like uh, Gabe was saying, you can come up with cool ideas, but the execution is everything. And, you know, luckily we, we had such a great team of people that help us put it all together. And they all, I think gaming being so universal and us being at a time in our lives where gaming has been around for quite a few decades. So there are different entry points for different ages. We all have some opinions, nostalgia, current relationship, prior relationship to what gaming is. So those people who were really articulate were able to kind of bring us to talk about that passion. And that's the one thing a concept needs to do is connect with all of us, with the audience and I think that's what we're really lucky in is that everybody had so much to say. And so Gabe was working on a few projects. One of them was an interactive game called yeah, Robo Burger, which yeah. we reference in <laughs> Collection Quest when we say Robo Burger. And there's also, um, I think there's a graphic for it on the wall of Jerry's yeah. store. And, you know, he's the person who introduced me to game emulators and who showed me all his classic carts and we would talk endlessly about well, why do we love these things? Why do we hold on to them? What is our relationship? And that's a big question about all of it. Why Ghostbusters? Why the old Dungeons and Dragons cartoon? Like what about those things did we really like? Why do we still talk about them? That was a major nut to crack to say, well, if we want our show to affect people in any kind of similar way, it helps us to kind of look at the DNA of these things that we love and ask why we still feel yeah. connection to them. One of the key things that uh, on every project that I work on is 
you know, and even on, on glitch sex, I constantly would say like, what's the feeling, you know, what are we, what are we trying to feel, you know, with the show, with the episode, with the characters and with this idea, yeah, there's something that's consistent with the Ghostbusters and all of the video games and these things. It's definitely a nostalgic kind of like feeling, but I truly believe that it's a feeling that you have when you're a kid, right? There's something very innocent and just new to these ideas uh, or the things that you watch, they're so new to you and you take them in so innocently. And I think that to me is what nostalgia is. And I always like to kind of dig into, you know, what is that feeling that you had when you were a kid, when you opened up that present, you know, and, and you got that toy or that video game that you saw, it's a certain kind of feeling. And we were constantly trying to find those feelings in, you know, with the characters, with the show, with the episodes that we were doing. We had a lot to prove also, because I think when you say you're going to do a show about games and everyone assumes it'll be nostalgic and the danger with nostalgia in pop culture right now is that if it's very superficial and you're just throwing references out, it can be received as very disingenuous. Hmm. Even if it's genuinely expressed, there's nothing else to it. But we, to separate ourselves too, we really want to ask ourselves, well, how can we make all these references organic they need to be organic to the story and the characters and it's less about that thing you remember and more that feeling you remember why do we have this nostalgic attraction let's try to extract that feeling more than anything else so that's why again i i don't know sometimes i think we were just making it as impossible a job as possible <laughs> <laughs> like raising our our own bar and worked with a lot of people who raised it for us. I remember sometimes feeling almost like a sense of embarrassment. We had so many great creators consult with us. And I remember thinking, man, we got to do everything they just said or I'll feel terrible. They just <laughs> made this so much harder, but yeah, yeah. I can't look them in the eye if we don't at least try to do these things, you know, and, but that's great. That's fantastic, you know? I, I remember when Gabe introduced us to Mike Micah, it felt like this dude's like the real deal. Mike Micah's the real deal. And if we're using him, we have to make sure that we don't let guys like this down, you know what I mean? Like that feeling that you just said, Dan, it's like you feel this responsibility of not effing up, you know what I mean? Yeah, Gabe and Mike definitely set the bar in terms of this is how gaming works, this is how the relationship with devs, this is what we've seen in the past that didn't connect. If you're gonna do Metroidvania with an episode like Castlestein, like here are the elements that you absolutely need to hit or you are missing the mark and there are two reactions to that. One is, thanks very much, I'll keep it in mind, and then you just do whatever. And the other is you do take the time to go back to them and say, is it right? Is it right? Do you have any notes? Do you have any notes? When you're already in a sea of notes. But we love doing it. It was worth it because everything they had to say enriched the project and made us giddy that we were getting something right. I think getting that history in there too. Mike and I really love the history of video games. And I'm just such a huge fan of even what Mike does that I'm just like, hey, tell about the time that you did blah, blah, blah. Or yeah. hey, yes, like tell, tell about that freaking awesome thing with Polybius and stuff. You know, it's like, yeah. it's all this stuff that's just, hey, Mike, just tell him this or, hey, why don't we try this or something? You know what I mean? It was always those early consulting that, what was it? Like the retreat thing that we did with all the creators yeah. was like yeah. tons of fun, just tons of fun where it was just, everybody was in there. The show probably started as a tiny little nut. And then by the end of that thing, it was just Dan and Eric. Just, 
how are we gonna make this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was crazy, but you baby really step it. We blew it up. We blew it up basically. So it, it was <laughs> great. It was such a great session. I, I mean, uh, anybody who was a part of that initial writing retreat, you know, I know I, I hear this from Ian and uh, you know Eric Pay that was there, Aaron, all the different people that I've talked to uh, regularly. Like they're always reminiscing on that, and it was like, man, that thing was so informative and it also allowed us to realize that oh we're not making just that concept that we talked about now now we're making something that's even deeper okay now we have to really kind of roll up our sleeves and make a show glitch text so should we get into this <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely thank you so much you guys and yeah so for everyone out there Making a great show is hard work. It's totally worth it, but it's going to get even bigger than what you think. So bring in really talented, good people to work with you. I mean, I think that's fantastic that y'all brought in so many consultants and artists and people in the industry and said, all right, here's how you can even plus this idea. So that is great. So let's get into it. So like we said earlier, this is episode one, Age of Hanobi. So reading the Netflix synopsis here, this one is about a tournament for the city's best gamers, brings together High Five and Miko, two competitors who figure out something suspect is going on. So with that lead up, so everyone at home, we have it queued up, set to zero, zero, zero. So at the count of three, you'll wanna go ahead and press play, not before and not after, but at the count of three. So at home, one, two, and three. And we've got the Netflix logo going through there. Netflix original series and Nickelodeon. That, that title we spliced together like super fast, by the way, <laughs> that intro. Yeah, even that title we had to create from like existing footage when we found out we were going to Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, getting to Netflix is a whole other podcast. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I could definitely speak on this whole intro because I got to say that this this whole intro was in my head from day one. Um, I remember going into Dan's office and putting up like a recorder. And I know I have those, uh, you know, recorded somewhere um, of me saying, OK, uh, so so it's going to be creepy up front, man. It's going to be really kind of like, you know, these kids are going to be playing their video game and, you know, everything's going to seem normal, but then all of a sudden that, that glitch is going to happen and everything's going to get super dark. Um, and something's going to start ripping out of the television set, but it won't be like Saturday morning style. It's going to be like dark, man. And then this thing's going to start coming out. And I just remember like talking about this intro specifically to Dan and Dan was just like typing away. We used to refer to it as the, the X-Files sequence because you know one hour shows like um genre shows like netflix would typically open with a also case study shows would open with like um a, a cold open that sort of sets a premise in motion and obviously it was such a great idea to do that with this because it also tells you what kind of world we're in i mean and ghostbusters the movie does the same thing it begins in a library with a supernatural occurrence you haven't met the ghostbusters yet but you've met the ghosts so first you meet the pests then you meet the exterminators is kind of the idea but you know being primarily a comedy network this was this was a bit nerve-wracking to uh, nickelodeon only in terms of tone and because again you know they 
they don't want to confuse their audience. They're, they're worried like, hey, we know this is also a really fun comedic action show. If you start uh, with a, a great intensity, you might turn off a lot of viewers. You might scare some kids. You know, are you sure you want to begin that way? Um, but we really stuck to our guns. And Eric in particular um, was like, I just want to try it. And this is why we really loved our... Um, our um, primary executive, Megan Casey, because she was like, well, let's test it. You know, we, we were developing in-house testing at Nickelodeon and um, that was new for them. So they had the opportunity to try out their new shiny testing system by putting an animatic in front of some kids. And thankfully those kids enjoyed it and understood it. And yeah, so I remember them asking the kids like, hey, was uh, that too scary, uh, you know, this opening? And man, I was crossing my fingers like, man, yeah. kids, don't, don't say you're scared of this. Don't say you're scared of this because I wanted this opening so bad uh, just because I, I just felt that if I would watch this for the first time, I know I don't know nothing about this show. And if I would watch this alone, I'd be like, OK, I want to watch more. I just wanted an opening that made me feel that way. And, um, and, and the kids, they, they totally loved it. We, we never got any negativity as far as like, it's too scary, it's too dark. All the things that they were worried about, like the kids just enjoyed it. And those tests were, were really like nerve wracking because we were testing with an animatic, not even full animation. And to, to have kids sit down for 44 minutes I mean, normally you're, you're testing 11 minute shows and you're like, okay, we, we can get in and get out. But we had to have those kids hooked for 44 minutes watching the show. Yeah, and you don't want them squirming around, looking at their phones, looking at one another, fighting or pushing. It's like, no, eyes on screen, be yep. entertained. Don't freak out. But if you freak out in like the cool kid way of, yeah, that was scary. It's great. Not, yeah, it was scary. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't want to see that again. Remember this, Dan? The, the music oh, yeah, the, for this? The sound here is a great example. And then there's a tonal shift. And then this is the show that kind of Nick invested in more. <laughs> um, but, you I'm know. Like, I want to do, well, which, which leads to my next project that I'm uh, developing now. It's like it's definitely have a darker tone to it. So that's like, Yeah, it's, it's, it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. I think, you know, eight to 11 year old action is where they saw this being. Um, they didn't say it out loud, but I think we were still at a time five, six years ago where the, the subtext is also a boy show. And one of the things that we wanted to do was make something for all audiences, like all ages, because we have children, we've watched cartoons with our kids and we know which ones we like and which ones we don't. So we wanted this to be a show that hopefully other adults would enjoy. Um, teenagers, fans of all, fanboys of all ages and girls. And then also um, to make sure that this was something that everyone could identify with. You know, 50% of the gaming community is female and, and has been. And so, you know, that was something that came up early on and Nick, you know, we didn't talk about it a lot. We just kept putting the tone out there that we wanted. Um, and then Nick just kind of by degrees, let us do what we wanted to do. We didn't get a ton of pushback except for that opening sequence. Right. And even then it was pretty fair handed. We, we didn't really have a lot of arguments with the network. It was, it was a pretty good relationship as far as the content goes. A lot of this uh, this UI stuff that you see here, um, it, it 
it, it was uh, done by Scott Kakuda, our art director, um, with uh, James Farr, who um, some people might recognize. I know, uh, Gabe, you're definitely probably familiar with him. He did those uh, Super Mario Busters. I don't know if you ever seen those. Oh, yeah, on YouTube, those cool, right? YouTube. Yeah, on YouTube. Yeah. yeah, he he did a lot of the UI stuff for us and also did the animation on that uh, Chomp Kitty. Uh, Go on YouTube and look for Super Mario Busters and Google James Farr. Uh, Google everybody we're talking about, by the way. Um, <laughs> check out Mike Micah. He's a, a game developer at um, Other Ocean Studios. Um, uh, and everyone you should check out, including Angela here and The Animated Journey, which if you have not um, checked out, is an amazing podcast about animation. This, Thank you, Dan. This, this, <laughs> this, this scene here is was inspired by, you know, 19-year-old me when my parents... Uh, you know, I was working a security job and I got uh, an opportunity to uh, to do an internship at uh, Graz Entertainment um, for the first time. And I wasn't sure if I should take it because financially uh, I was helping my parents uh, with my with my part time job while I was going to college. And I got offered this internship and I almost didn't take it because, you know, I wanted to keep helping my parents financially. And then they just encouraged me to take this internship, which eventually uh, led to my career. And so it was so awesome to see a piece of my life into uh, an episode like this where the grandparents like really support High Five to go on this, um, you know, tournament that changes his life. So Gabe and, and Mike had a lot of influence in just like sometimes going over the gaming stuff we were doing and then also just in general, helping us develop the concept and the characters. I remember Chris Young uh, in the collective mentioned that at a time when we thought Hanobi would be um, glitching not just video games but things like smart smart cars and and smartphones um, kind of advised us if you can believe it to like focus more on video games to not to not um, oversaturate the concept and just let it be less about all tech and more just focus on games at least for now um, and Gabe and everybody helped us develop the character of High Five a little bit because the concept was strong and Miko was strong, but we didn't quite have a definition of who High Five was yet. If anything, he was the guy who was a little studious and nervous. So he was very much the archetype of like the control freak. And that's not necessarily a fun character. So we wanted to round him out. And a lot of folks said, Eric, like, you know, Re look at look at what's personal to you bring bring some of you to five and those discussions are what led to scenes like the one with Poppy and Abuela which is such a definitive scene for him and also that idea of five as a kid who just this, wants to play this scene has all our production crew's names in the background there I see that I saw Irinio as a person I'm like oh my gosh every single person is there <laughs> yeah yeah it's such, such a great Easter egg uh, for the team like we just put a bunch of names of the crew all up there so that was really neat um, you know obviously we have to mention a huge part of glitch text is uh, Ian Graham our supervising producer um, he was so I mean, without Ian, I don't think we would have had the show that, that we ended up having. Yeah. You know, he, he definitely um, was my right hand when it came to making sure we had all the right pieces together to make the kind of animation happen. I mean, we literally uh, tr 
traveled all around the world to, to find the animation team uh, that, that we, we did to make a show like this. It was not easy to find um, an animation studio that can animate the kind of show that we wanted to do. So Ian Graham and I, <laughs> we spent many a sleepless nights uh, on planes and uh, all over the country trying to find uh, the right studio and the animators for this. Developing relationships with um, animators themselves who eventually got to be handpicked to be on some of the, the, the teams and the studio that was being built. Um, Ian had worked on so many series over the years, most of them at Nick, including Avatar and Korra. I mean, he directed some, some of the most amazing episodes of Legend of Korra. He knew so many talented people and also had a lot of experience and had a lot of theories he wanted to test on ways to, to create board teams, on ways to alter the typical process. Um, for example, um, giving board artists a lot more time up front to do their thumbnails instead of giving them more time to revise at the end of the production, which meant, you know, having a more thoughtful time to explore ideas at the head of the production. Um, and that was a little risky because what happens if you need to revise later and you don't have enough time, but it worked out great. We, in fact, we, we rarely had an episode that needed to be uh, reboarded beyond the thumbnail. So, there, that there's, a, there, there's a mistake there. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah uh, you know, again, these are things that, little things that bug me and Ian. Uh, but, you know, he has his wristband on one hand in that one scene. And then oh, yeah. uh, the yeah. next one, it goes to the other. Um, also, Ian is uh, uh, the, the bee in the Hanobi bee. Uh, we put him as... Costume, yes. Yeah, so later on when um, that... Uh, mascot gets his head blown off like there's a character that pops up that's actually Ian and uh, talking about like that character um, that was something that we literally explored with James Farr as well um, coming up with because we initially wanted to make that that be as part the of bee. a bigger yeah a mascot for uh, Hanobi yeah he he's meant to be kind of the Mario of um, the Hanobi universe and he just as Mario appeared in different forms over the years throughout the series, you will you will see uh, Nobi the the bee in all these different forms. But we don't really show shine a light on him other than here in the pilot. Yeah, and, this, it, and it's directly influenced by the Hudson Soft Bee, by the way. I'm yeah, sure of that. <laughs> yes, yeah, see, there exactly. you go. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Um, this this whole world here, the game itself was a big long conversation that went on for a few days um i, I remember uh, ian graham kind of really took it and ran because he he spent some time to try to figure out what the gameplay for this whole thing was going to be um him and eric pay i think went off and started doing designs of what this kind of future aztec kind of game would look like but i just remember like uh they would have like some real deep discussions on kind of like how this whole thing worked. That's another thing that like, you don't even uh, think about when you're watching this, but each one of these games, we almost have to like figure out like, how do you yeah. even play this game? Like, like what are the rules to this thing before we even board and start writing this thing? Down yeah. to the kitty, even to the kitty cat one though. Yeah. I mean, yeah, cause you have to figure it out. You have to figure out the rules. I remember like in development, we talked about how they erase the memories and we talked about it. Well, how does memory work? Yes. And like yeah. in computers and, and games and can you fragment it and overwrite it? And it was like this, 
And since Mike was there, it was just like, okay, Mike, how does it work? And then he said, yeah, this could, you could, you could do this. Like, yeah. this could actually, and it was based on like how it could really work. So a lot of, of the... stuff is like all that, all that stuff you don't really think of, but it's like, it's in there. It's all like, you have to figure it, at least have some kind of rule set in place. And then like when you can, cause then once you want to explore it later, you, you have the rules there, you know? Exactly right. And ha having them was amazing because they helped legitimize a lot of what we were doing conceptually where, you know, yes, it's a cartoon show and so much of it is heightened and fabricated. Um, but what's fun is, and this and Ghostbusters and Star Trek and Back to the Future do this too, is when you base those concepts on something real, it you can really tell. And so Plixels are based on a form of nano or meso technology that is theoretically possible. Um, data has been written to the human brain and there are things called T-rays that are that are being developed as well. Um, the concept for the memory that we don't talk about in the series because we like things to come up in context of story rather than just sit there and have a class that teaches you is that um, they don't really erase memories so much as they rearrange the memory pointers that, um, that keep your memories in a sequence. So if three events happen and I want you to forget the middle one, I'll just change the pointer from the first memory in the sequence to the last. So I skip that middle piece. It's still there. It's in your mind. I haven't erased it. Because in, in development, it's usually easier to redirect stuff than to delete. And that Mike was telling us that. Very often, you'll just redirect information. That was, that was all set up for like a really cool reveal later that you, that never got yeah. to, right? When, like when, when like five gets his memory back. Cool like it was a cool setup for like a concept we never got to. You know? Yes, we want to be able to explore it more. But yes, uh, five does get his memories back here. He, he, when when the reality is, he's faced with holding that bracelet. His pointer kind of snaps back. Yeah. And so it shows you that yes, this company has this technology. They can do these manipulations, but it's not, um, it's not magic, and it's not a catch-all. You know. We also try to joke a lot that just like any consumer technology, there's bugs and glitches. The stuff doesn't always work. You know, I'm having to send back an HDTV right now. I've had to send back multiple Xboxes in, in my day with red rings and, and such. So just because the company tells you everything works doesn't mean it always does. And that's part of the satire of the show, you know? Yeah. Um, so... This this whole scene was all like, a, like it was really difficult for the animation team to do these kind of like, it was like a combination of the CG. Yeah. This is all CG here. Um, and I just remember them having like a hard time, like trying to figure it out. But we have uh, Benedetta, um, which was uh, leads uh, animation supervisor at uh, Studio 100. Uh, her and her team really figured out how to put this whole sequence together. And I think it was uh, Sarah Partington who had boarded up this whole sequence. She's amazing. Uh, wasn't wasn't Luther in in all this too in the beginning? Yep. Like he, yep. was, he was with me on Kung Fu Panda. He was like my right hand on Kung Fu Panda before this. And yeah, yep. I, I love Luther. He's I think he's just doing feature stuff now, right? I think he's recording features. So. I don't I don't know uh, where where he went off to, but yeah, he definitely was a huge asset to us uh, for this episode. He was a supervising director of um, the the pilot. Mm -hmm. Luther McLaren, right? Yeah. Yes, Luther McLaren. 
Scott Kakuda's uh, art direction in this whole thing oh. was just amazing. His influence on the whole show uh, can't can't be understated. No. Yeah, he, he came from, from games, uh, right? So he had come from Bungie and, you know, had worked on some of the Halo stuff. And I mean, just his own art style alone really influenced the show. And, and, and he really kind of... There he is on the left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's one of the incidentals. But he was one of the ones that just told me, like, even if you have bad animation, if you have, like, awesome effects, it can distract from bad animation, right? <laughs> and I was like, really? <laughs> Tell me more, <laughs> you know? And uh, so he was really uh, adamant about bringing in an effects artist, uh, you know, bringing in Tony, right? To uh, Yeah, to, Tony Unser. To, right, to, to bring in Tony and say, like, you know what? If you have, if you bring in this guy, he's going to do some amazing uh, effects for your show. And I didn't realize, like, uh, until then, how important having a great effects artist is. Um, as opposed to having an animation, you usually have your prop guy do your effects. But to have somebody that specializes in just doing effects, it made a world of difference for our show. They work together so well. Tony's effects, Tony did every effect in the show, which is probably three times the amount of most shows. And uh, he did it single-handedly. He was absolutely incredible. And then he, he and Scott together, I mean, really created the, the palette you see, you know. Um, oh, oh here's Ian. Ian Graham. Oh, there's Ian. There he is. <laughs> the hat and everything. Oh, I love the sequence so much. Just seeing Mitch like go at it here was like, oh man, I was like, go Mitch, go. Every time I, I would hear, uh, Brad Breek, uh, our composer, uh, amazing job with his uh, music. But whenever he switches it up and with the music, I always felt like, oh yeah, man, Mitch is gonna go at it, or who's gonna go at it now? It all, uh, you know, the music always told me how to feel. We could do a whole podcast on Mitch as well. Um, <laughs> so, Gabe, you saw the original pilot presentation. I think the only scene that got from that into this is the one where Five remembers his gaming experiences with Miko, where he's repeatedly, you know, beaten by Miko. Other than that, this, this spares no resemblance to our original 11 minute um, pilot. Well, and the opening, I think the opening was still in there too, right? Do we have that same opening, Eric? We must have. Uh, man. I remember seeing a board of it really, really early. Like, I think that was one of the first things you boarded. Maybe we did, but it was Rock God Wizard who came out of the TV, because right. that, that was our initial villain. And yeah. Mitch Williams was very different in that. Um, in that, he was yeah. like, he, he was still had Boosh. He he created the, uh, the other the other Mitch created the original Boosh, and then we carried it on. That's <laughs> I, right. I, I always like uh, it's like my own goofy uh, thing, but I always like giving like my characters like a, a ism. <laughs> you know, we did it on fanboy like all the time, and then so for this, I wanted to create like a little ism for him. So Boosh became like uh, Mitch's thing. I have no ob objectivity. Gabe so like in your in your mind um because you were with us through the development of the initial idea through you know pretty much all of um our first Nickelodeon season which was like our first um 20 episodes uh what was your uh just general impression of this crazy <laughs> development uh you know I mean at the time Nickelodeon it, it's it was hard to like convince them to make anything at that point yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh let alone you guys like stuck to your guns man like it, it's incredible like i mean i had something like three or four projects going at, over the course of like three years and none of them happened and you guys just 
jumped in and kept going, you know, and, and uh, I think it's cool. Like it's, it's crazy to remember what it started off as because it was so small. It felt small. Mm. And this is like humongous. Like it's, it, you guys did a really good job as far as like just exploding it out. And I don't know, man, like I, hats off to you guys. Like it's, it's, it's a really good show. And I, I really wish it was really promoted and really, and Nickelodeon like really got behind it uh, more so than they did because it's, I still think it could have been bigger if they, it's like everything at Nickelodeon. I'm sorry to say, but like, <laughs> they, the uh you know they they make stuff and then they kind of don't support it you know as much as yeah. they could at least that's how the creators feel you know so yeah um, that's thanks, true thanks for saying that Gabe I mean yeah. it, it definitely it, it it was a real passion I mean every project we all work on our passion projects but you, you you're right you're just like oh man please just support us and give us the right like you know love and just air it every day at the same time I yeah. trust us, someone yeah. will watch it. Your <laughs> yeah. audience will grow. Trust us, you know. It's it's interesting too because we uh, we never wanted to sell out the show, but we're we're also really interested in in what the network needs to accomplish and how that works. Like we're interested, and then we also want to help them help us. So with this show, we spent a lot of time talking to our friends in other departments. We talked to marketing, we talked to toys, and um, we talked to, um, um, you know, so many execs about, well, you know, ideally, what, what kind of project are you looking for that makes it easier for you guys, blah, blah, blah. And this was stuff that very easily fit into what we were doing creatively. So we were proud. We thought we were handing them something that could check every box. And that would be something that you know would be a, a, a gift in a way um something easily easy easily promotable that reached all the places they wanted to reach so we were surprised yeah. at the response to say the least but the 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 random die role in all of this is that you know nickelodeon's um you know executive staff changed so much like three or four times yeah and that that's a lot of you know they had their own fires to put out and it was a miracle we kind of got to finish what we started you guys are the survivors with. because that's usually what happens is as soon as new execs come in everything oh, gets killed and yeah start new and you got just kind of like flew under the radar because you started and then everyone got fired yeah. and then you kept going and then somebody else came in and yeah <laughs> you're right man yeah, it was crazy that the, during that whole period it was crazy we just never knew uh if we were going to continue or not um so, so it was crazy during that time. That's um, this is the best place to be too, though. Like you don't want to like, you want to have a disaster next to you so they don't pay attention to what you're doing and you can kind of like do it. <laughs> right. I, I think that's- It worked out a lot. Of, yeah. A lot of successes is just like the, ever, the, uh, the, the network's attention is on one thing and not on the other thing. Cause that's how yeah. SpongeBob happened. It was like, they picked up CatDog for whatever it was like 70 episodes and SpongeBob for like 13. And it just grew out of that, you know? So right. they really never knew or even cared about it until it started getting viewers, you know? So This, this whole uh, storyline here, I remember um, in the early days, you know, Dan, um, I had suggested that like, I need to see what the story looks like with post-its. Uh, do you remember this, Dan? And then we, we, yeah. we made, because, uh, you know, again, I'm a visual person and uh, Dan knows this. I almost have to lay things out, even story, like as opposed to just kind of like, 
uh, writing it out, I literally need to see things in post-its. And we had written out in this room, we, we had just taken over a room and we built a whole bunch of post-its that literally gave you the storyline. It was kind of like a Dungeons and Dragons kind of <laughs> looking at it, right? Like looking at it with its pieces and saying like, this will happen here and then this will happen here. But I remember James Stevenson had given us this idea of like, you know, making it more of a mystery where these kids have to go figure out like yes. what, what, what happened, right? Like they, they lost their memory or at least one of them did, she didn't. And they have to go figure out like what happened, you know, uh, that first half. And I love that. I love when he said that because now it, uh, it allowed me to think like, wow, this is not just a cartoon. Now it just became more of like a, like a live action kind of series where the yeah. characters need to figure out more. And it's not just some wacky cartoon with cool stuff in it. Like now it just became uh, deeper with story. And I just remember uh, when he had mentioned that it allowed us to really kind of start growing out the storyline a lot more. The original um, concept was a little bit of a Trojan horse in that we knew that if we, if we started too big, the network would be nervous about that. They weren't in the business of making epic action series. In fact, the last ones they had made, which was the Avatar series did not, they did not feel panned out well for them um, for whatever reason. And we went in with a short 11 minute comedy version to kind of get the ball rolling. Thankfully, execs there at the time, Jenna Boyd, Phil Rinda, um, they, they, they gave us great notes. They, they wanted us to push. They saw what the potential was and they gave us great notes to push it to a more mature place which is where we wanted to be uh, anyway. Then um, folks like James Stevenson also understood what it was and made those fantastic suggestions that just kept raising the bar, just like everybody else. And then, you know, it was less us struggling to do these things and more just everybody, not only supporting it, but, but giving great ideas. Um, that, that's definitely the love I, I felt, you know, um, having, you know, everybody there. I, I mean, with the collective, you know, Gabe, everybody like, it felt like everybody was helping and supporting this idea. And we did that all together. Like, I, I love I love when we would get together and show off our work when we were in the collective. And that was something just nice to get feedback. We would throw up our animatic at whatever stage it was. And everybody would just help and and give their opinions and, and and we kept getting that kind of feedback throughout right even after the collective then when we're when we had our executives involved they wanted to help it wasn't like they were hindering us they just kept helping us jenna boyd was the one who gave us the challenge to come up with a female character as opposed to just um you know high five and bit she was yeah, like co-lead yeah she was like guys can you guys create a female like to go along on this adventure with this and we were nervous because we were like, oh, uh, yeah, I think so. And then we just went back to the office and like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to write a female character into this uh, world that, that we thought we knew uh, what it was? But um, it really allowed us to explore and come up with a character that really kind of uh, made the show for us. It's just that every, yeah. every major change is scary. And you wonder like, oh, you know, what we've got is working. If we change it, will it not work? You know, but then that we quickly realized that, uh, you know, it's all really worthy. In fact, you look at it now and you think, how could it be otherwise? How could it be any different than it is? Um, and we just kind of embraced pretty much everything. That collective was a really good idea. I think it was Jenna that basically formed it and then brought in Phil to run it, you know? So 
I remember like everyone, I love that getting together and that's how that's, and then they let us bring in guests and that's when I brought Mike in yeah. and that's when you guys met Mike and I knew that Dan and Mike were going to be like best friends forever, <laughs> you know, just because I met Dan right before. So yeah, without the collective, I don't think any of this stuff could have been possible, you know, no. it's such a good idea that, the, that I just, Nickelodeon has so many good ideas. They just need to support it, you know? Yeah, it was in the early days. I remember uh, Jenna had just got her position there and she was like, uh, and I, I had just wrapped up on family and was working on uh, some stuff. And then she says, all right, if we're going to keep you on on an overall deal, like what, what would you like to do? And I was like, what if we did like a brain trust like Pixar? What do you think of this? You know, and then she was like, she didn't even hesitate. She was like, that's what we're going to do. We're going to create our own brain trust. And, and it, it was awesome because it allowed us to, to bring this community together of, of talent. Um, I'm going to go back real quick to, to, to the scene in here. Uh, earlier when uh, Mitch like kicks five right in the, <laughs> in the face. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's a good brutal. example of tone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if uh, the, the way we got away with that, because normally you can't do that was we just added a flash flame uh, a flash frame in there, which was uh, Ian's idea. He was like, if we put a, a flash frame in there, we can get away with this. It but avoids contact. Yeah, yeah, it's so fast though that like the contact is definitely still there. <laughs> that's, so that's great. How, that's the struggle we had on Kung Fu Panda was like we had a Kung Fu show where we couldn't punch each other. So, like, <laughs> but, but wouldn't it allow you to get, get away with punch it? Punch at screen, you know? And you're, yep. And that's, you, get away with you would it. think that it'd be easier because you know it's a panda it's not a human right like there, there's all those weird rules to all that stuff yeah it falls in the category of like repeatable behaviors for oh kids at home and things like that um where which is why when things get when there's a fantasy element kids can't you know mimic the behavior um can we talk about the voice casting just because Dan's coming up here? Like, oh, yeah. first of all, it's like very, very rare to get like animators and writers as voice actors. And this show has three, right? Like yeah. Monica, Dan, and Scott. Like, yeah. like Dan, of course, has done acting. and But like Scott, hardly anything. And Monica, not, nothing, you know, like, and she's the lead, you know, like one of yeah. the leads. And she's... It was it was cool that you guys like I think she came in to do scratch or something right for you guys and then that was it like you guys just kept pushing her forward and I, and, I would and uh, fell in love with her I would constantly hear Monica outside like she was always visiting us right in that whole bullpen area that we had and I would hear her just blah, 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 screaming outside right and talking to everybody and she was she just was like this ball of energy and I remember I was like oh man, like she would be great for a scratch because she has so much energy. And so I had just asked her, I said, would you mind doing some scratch for me? She was like, yeah, totally, blah, blah. You know, she was so into it. And once she did it, it was just like, oh my gosh, the energy and personality that she brought, like just, you know, I do crazy drawings and, you know, really fun, crazy drawings, but she made my drawings like, it plus anything I had done just with her scratch over it, you know? Um, and then uh, Ricardo was an interesting uh, uh, story because that was kind of like an open cast situation. And um, he had done his, his read and he was about to leave, you know, he, you know, he did a fine job, but it just, you know, it, it didn't really kind of get my attention. And then he was about to leave and I saw his name 
and I saw his last name, uh, Ricardo Jurado, right? And I was like, I was like, hey, do you speak Spanish? And then he said, yeah. I was like, then go back in there, man. Give me some Spanish to this character, bro. <laughs> and sure enough, he read the line. I gave him some lines in Spanish and he read them with, with who he really was. That also, that, yes, because it also relaxed him. Let his, his initial audition was over and psychologically sending him back in casually let him just be himself, which was yeah. key because it was his first ever voiceover audition. Right. And I think that gave him permission to relax. Sandeep Parikh was the same way. His initial audition was a little stiff, even though he was an experienced actor. It's just an awkward situation to be in a booth with people looking at you. I mean, I've been there, it's, it's freaky. So when he came back a second time, he was amazing because he'd already done it. He'd already done the scary part. Um, and I think we had a, a voice actor temp some stuff for Five at first, um, who's a talented person. And I think ultimately though, Five was still underdeveloped as a character. And so it was the lines that were more the problem than the actor at that point. And eventually um, it all came around and Ricardo was somebody that casting suggested we try and Eric saw so much in him and it just worked out so great. They all bring amazing energy. Like yeah. Scott and Monica, Monica Ray and Scott Kramer, they were working at Nick. They came in to help us out and give us a little energy reference but it just so happens they are amazingly natural actors. I don't think Scott knew what an amazing actor he I've is. I've been wanting to put Scott in stuff since Kung Fu Panda because he was a writer oh. on that show too. And I wanted it to be on screen for so long and you guys did it, but I tried so hard before that. <laughs> Chris and Ricky had given him a, a small part in um, uh, Pinky Malinky right? as like Nurse Nancy, yeah. I think. And I, I, uh, I had him come in to do Scratch. It was literally just Scratch uh, for the, um, it was the uh, like a, a promo kind of teaser test we had done. And I needed a Scratch for a Phil, right? The Phil character. And he did that Scratch for me. And that was it. Like he was just that perfect boss voice, man. <laughs> and after that, like Dan and I were just like, oh my gosh, of course, Scott has to be this character. Scott is in real life such a curmudgeon and he's he's extremely funny so he's also sarcastic and you know but um you also know he's a sweet guy he loves his kids and that comes through so I, I always wrote that to that Scott. you know we yeah, just wrote I, I, to that I constantly idea. talk about when I think about Scott I think of him in animation form uh, the way he works right because he acts like animation's uh it's so uh and uh about animation and the but you know he, he loves inside it. loves it he loves yeah. the people he loves the the world of animation there's so much love so you, so i don't care how much you say you know animation is rough or this or anything negative about it i can see right through you man like scott loves this world and that's the kind of boss we needed for the show we needed a boss who you know uh there's a lot going on in, in the company the world and he hates the politics of it all but deep inside he loves these kids and you have to tweak the writing to that because early on a lot of the scripts had lines for phil that were more like him insulting the team i remember in the ridley episode at the very end he says uh you're all weirdos and we revised that to be we're all weirdos because it's like, no, Phil doesn't walk through a room and just attack everybody. He walks through a room and he, he sobers everybody with a line that undercuts, but he's gonna include himself. 
in the weirdos. Like he's not going to judge. And that was a subtle change, but it was important that like Phil is not out to hurt anybody or take them down a peg. He's their friend and their coach and he's their mentor. And he's right when he says those things. We are all weirdos, you know? Yeah. In fact, that's the theme of the episode. So it's great to have a character like that who you think you've seen before, but is just a little bit, you know, different, a little more well-rounded. Hey Dan, what was your, what was your uh, influence for, for Bit? Like just voice acting? I had so many versions of Bit we wrote. I, originally, I remember I wanted to see if we could get someone like David Tennant um, or Reese Darby. Who, then I found out Reese Darby was doing Voltron. Um, we cast Tom Wilson at first, who was great. Then we decided to wait, if only because um, we thought he might even not be verbal. We might do like an R2-D2 thing where we just have beeps and blurps. And um, rather than make a casting decision we would regret, we decided, all right, we're going to cast Bit last. And I'll do Scratch for him, and we'll see how it goes. And I had an old 2XL toy robot, um, which ran on 8-track tapes and was this really funny robot that used to be one of the earliest interactive toys. Our writer, David Anaxagoras, also had one, and he brought it into the office. And 2XL used to talk like this. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm just going to do 2XL, my impression of 2XL for a while, and see where that leads. And, and Eric would direct me to make sure it stayed fairly rigid and fairly you know, computer, um, and that I didn't change the voice too much, because it's similar to Greg the Bunny, and I didn't want to slip into a Greg the Bunny character, even though the voices are a little similar, and it just kind of worked out, so we reached this great point where we thought, all right, this is bit, I don't think we're gonna go back, we can lock it down. Casting did scrutinize, though, M me, Monica, um, anybody who wasn't a you know, well-known name because they wanted to make sure we weren't just, you know, casting our own team for the sake. But I think everyone who saw the stuff saw that like, you know, even though Monica hadn't done major acting before, she was irreplaceable. She was just incredible. So was Scott. And I won't say that about myself, but I will say I was just doing something that no one else was doing. If somebody else could do the exact same thing, well, great. Um, the other advantage is that I, I was able to, um, to do other stuff, to do creature voices and things like that. So by casting me, I could do bit, and then I could also do a lot of glitch work and some, some of the smaller characters, like um, the owner of Joystick Juniors and stuff like that. But I'd been doing VO for a long time. Before this, I was the dad on uh, Dawn of the Crudes on, on Netflix. And I, you know, we, we, I can't believe we haven't brought up uh, Luke Youngblood as Mitch, who probably more than anyone, except maybe Monica, just, just completely influenced their character. But where I think Miko was written for Monica from the get-go, Mitch was very different before Luke came on board. Yeah. And his maturity and his his maturity at being immature and his amazing voice and accent and being like actually a really suave guy and in, in real life and it, and such a genuinely nice person made a jerk like Mitch somehow really intriguing. And we revised the entire character for him, including 
his skin color and, you know, um, and his, you know, his origin and everything. We, we just decided. He used to have like red hair, right? Like, wasn't he like a yeah like a jerky? Like yeah, he was more like this like throwback type of. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. His original voice was more like, hey, Miko, hey, fine. Oh, no. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's, th- those kinds of choices, though, guys, there's like, that's what adds another dimension to these characters. That's you, you, that's what you're so good at is like finding that stuff. Because like other creators, they just go, oh, what's the eat? Like, I mean, not everyone, but like some, it's always easier to go like to sell an idea that's simpler. But you guys always go for like this show, especially if it is for like, the harder concept. We did go for harder, but because it felt so right. And because again, when you have these amazing influencers too, you want to look them in the eye and say, yeah, all right, we're bringing, we're listening to what you've said. And we want to use this show as an opportunity to really connect with an audience. And so if we can elevate anything, let's do it. Especially when somebody walks in the room, who's just a clear gift. And that's what, um, Luke was. It was like, how do we not use this guy? We can't. Originally, we thought, oh, we love him, but too bad we don't have a part for him. We'll have to create one someday. And then that quickly changed to, wait, what are, are we crazy? Let's just change now. Let's just customize one of our existing characters for him. Yeah, we definitely uh, can't forget uh, Chris Graham, you know, uh, directing this episode. Uh, well, actually, I don't know, if, was he a director on this or did we bring him actually, in? Actually, this is Ian Graham directing. Yeah, um, Ian Graham and then Chris Graham uh, boarded a, a lot of those sequences, actually, yes. in, in the beginning and, and throughout. Also, Phil Jacobson, Jules. Um, I, I mean, gosh, so, so many people contributed to this episode. It just was great. I never saw that guy, that big robot mech guy back there again. I, I, I wish we would have done something with that. <laughs> he was there to appease uh, Jaden Stevenson who wanted a robot mech on the show. And we thought that was a little complicated for us, but we wanted to put in something to let him know it would be possible in this world. Right. And Eventually, Hugo, Hugo, Hugo Morales, right? I mean, he put this thing together for us, our editor, Hugo uh was was awesome he he was there for our original pilot he was there for this because he was part of the the collective as well he he edited every all, all the animatics and right i insisted on him being in the collective because he was our our best editor on kung fu panda i was like you gotta get you go in because he was doing kung fu panda and he was also doing like every cartoon network pilot yeah freelance at the same time and i'm like <laughs> you got to knock it off, man. Like, let's get this guy in and do our pilots. Like, that's who needs to be doing our stuff, you know? So. He's someone yeah. who really also helped the tone. You know, we, we were pretty meticulous about things we wanted, but we weren't control freaks. We'd also want to see what Hugo had done. What's his version? What's, you know, and what are his opinions? And he was a third musketeer and just brought so much to it that wouldn't have been there before. And although he only edited on the pilot because he was moved to other productions, like he had a pretty seminal effect on everything that followed. And um, the other thing about Hugo, man, is if you went to his office (laughs) at Nickelodeon, you basically walked into the Haunted Mansion because he redecorated his entire office to be, you know, um, a shrine to like the Haunted Mansion. So you look for those people, not only because they have cool stuff, but how creatively too, they 
immerse themselves in worlds because if they can immerse themselves in their office, they can immerse a viewer in their content. <laughs> you know, it's really great to see when someone cares enough to art direct their own office. <laughs> it's like, this is how this shall be. I will make it so. Literal, <laughs> yeah, literal world building, you know? It's, it's just taking whatever you have and creating an experience. When you walk in Hugo's office, you feel the way he wants you to feel. And that's important and it extends to the work, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I always try to have a full like game set up in my office. I have one up oh, yes. right now. And, well, if we were there, but yeah. And everyone would just come in and like, just turn on an NES and play Super Mario Brothers. Like it was yeah. just, that's, and then you just start talking. It's like, even people that don't even, you don't know, like they'll just bring their friends in and you just start meeting people. It's like, that that's the best part. I mean, I think Mark Taylor kind of had that right with his candy. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Mark Taylor definitely had that. He had so many candies in his office. So, it, and he had that big window in front of his office. So you would pass by and you'd be like, what the f is this Willy Wonka? What the hell's going on here? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, come in, have some candy, come and chat. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to talk about in what we, sort of kind of watch um so many details uh so many people to thank i mean it it literally would take us a week to talk about every single thing we did to get this first episode up and running and the list of people to thank is it's pretty endless you know dan and i try to make it as clear as we can yeah our, our names are up there as creators or executive producers but it was made by an army of amazing people. You know, even if you just came in for a minute and said one word, it's a word that probably influenced us in one way or another, you know? So, you know, as much as, you know, it's cool to see our names up there, but we know that this thing was something that was made by a lot of awesome people. I think not enough credit goes to Lisa Woods, who is our producer, because she had to kind of keep the balance between you know, working for Nickelodeon and also working for us. And she did an amazing job at that. And Amanda McCann was the line producer or the associate producer on Pilot and a few of our first episodes. Eventually, Dasha Kalakova, I believe, came in and worked. So talking uh, to production is going to be interesting, too. Yeah, Amanda did our spaghetti in a bucket. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, Amanda is also the voice of uh, Blake, the spaghetti in a bucket clerk, right? She has a great voice too, man. She yeah. does. She has, like, know how to pick them. Like, it's great. It was hard for anybody to argue with us because in every case, there was not another voice like them, including Greg Nix as Nix. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he just had a unique tone. And that was always the thing we stood behind. Like, look, we're not just trying to, to take work away from competent actors, you know, because I've seen that done, by the way. I, I tried to be understanding of casting because I knew what they were looking out for. I have been on productions where the co-EP who never acted a day in their life is getting residuals because they said three lines or whatever. And that can be very shady. Hmm. But everybody saw in the work that like, oh my God, these voices are incredible. And we, we weren't trying to pull anything. And we went to amazing actors that casting cast for us at every opportunity. We just had to be firm when we said, look, this we want Amanda to play this part. She makes us laugh. She, we love her read. So that's what we're going to do. <laughs> uh, Josh Selsman too, right? Like you were friends with Josh. I used him on a pilot right before you cast him. And I think you and you were friends with him before that, right, Dan? 
Yeah, we met on a show I did called Warren the Ape, where I played Warren the Ape. And that was a show I co-created with Sean Baker and Spencer Chenoy. It was based on the Greg the Bunny show we had done. And they brought in Josh to play Warren's assistant. And I say they because I did not cast Josh. I think I saw a tape and gave my approval, but Spencer and Sean cast him. And they said, trust, trust us, when you meet this guy, you're going to love him. And I met him on set day one of shooting in a scene where our characters meet for the first time. And it was an improv scene. And I just didn't know if Josh was real or if he was putting on a character voice because he has uh-huh. such a unique voice. And I've just, he's such a sincere actor and I fell in love with him and we became good friends. And so early on, I have a sketch that Eric drew of Josh after he met him. Cause I said, I really think this guy should be a tech somewhere, you know, consider if you might want to work with him, we could bring him in for a test or something. And Eric drew a picture of Josh as a tech and that's how the character of Bergie that you know, hair. yeah, he, he that hair, man. Yeah, believe it or not, he tried out for Mitch Williams. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I think Dan brought him in as Mitch. I'm like, nah, dude, sorry, <laughs> he's not Mitch. He was too sweet. Yeah, he's not our Mitch, man. But then I think I had done a sketch yep. because of that. I reason. still have it. Yep. Yeah, I think he came in to do. Oh, that's uh, right. You did Mitch it in that Williams. session. Right. He came in as Mitch Williams. I was like, he's not our Mitch Williams. But I, because I knew he was Dan's friend, I drew a little sketch of him and I put him in that outfit and then I gave it to Dan. And then it was just like, well, we needed another character. We were like, there's your dude right there. <laughs> there's your glitch tag. That is true, because he's very kind. Like we had him on, on an episode you guys will see later on and he's just great. And he's just yeah. really, really, I mean, everyone on the show, they're just so funny. Everyone's yeah. just so funny even before we start recording the podcast it's just like boom 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 i'm like oh i need to just hit record and just just have the show before the show (laughs) just to have everybody be able to just hear just how you are out in the wild it's great funny people (laughs) smart people and my god like even you know you spoke to katie and having katie around was incredible how how were we blessed to have this production coordinator who started as production assistant and she just had such a deep knowledge of video games had such a personal relationship with games was funny and articulate and a bit manic I mean she she has an energy that matches Miko's and so she was an inspiration we ended up commissioning some premises from her and using her on the show in ways that we wouldn't have imagined and that extended to so many people we just had editors who had so much um, love of of the world of gaming and the culture. So it was just great to be surrounded by people like that, who, if nothing else, were funny and always had something interesting to say. And and after the first few months, they learned that they really could speak up. Because there are shows where I think the creators say, we'd love to know what you think. And then you open your mouth and they're like, fire that person. Uh, and they quickly realized that wasn't us. We, we meant it. You can say whatever you want to say. And Our production team, like just the support. Uh, I mean, without, you know, that's, that's kind of like the unsung heroes of production, right? Are all the production coordinators, production assistants, managers, line producers. I mean, they're definitely unsung heroes, but they keep us all together because without them we wouldn't make cartoons we wouldn't be able to make cartoons on our own so definitely i'm glad you're speaking to them because managing these assets and these pipelines was a really unique challenge and their ability to do that was everything and i do think young creators and even people who are just 
maybe hobbyists right now should know about that stuff. It is so important to what you're doing and the ability to kind of manage your own chaos is paramount. Uh, otherwise, you, you really can burn out. So I think more people are interested than places like Nickelodeon would think. So I think it's important to talk about all that. Yeah, they're the, definitely the backbone of any show, especially a complicated show. Like, Shellmon right now is like insane. And like this show, I can tell you right now, is like million assets too. And it's like, it's too much to manage. It's just too yeah. much to manage. It's like, you need someone to go like, hey, where's that thing? They are literally the backbone of the show. Multiple shots going to multiple studios for different passes at different stages. And then to have it all look completely uniform at the end is a testament not only to say a visual compositor to help bring it all together, but also to production, making sure that all those pieces line up, you know, and, and come back together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that completely because I'm on the art side now, but I did production for three years and you become a better artist when you've worked in production because not only do you have a better, a deeper understanding of the show and you meet everyone, but you realize it's not just about you. So yeah. you want to do a great job, but you don't want to be super precious with everything. And you want to make sure that you're hitting those deadlines and getting the naming conventions right and being kind to people before and after you, because you realize, oh, yes, what I'm doing is important, but it is a piece of right. a much bigger puzzle. And if I hoard this or start acting really weird with this or don't get it done on time, it will affect everybody else down the line. And that ultimately affects the show. Yes. So you want to be a good piece of the show, not the piece that sends the show into some kind of weird death spiral. Right. Yes, <laughs> really well said. You, you, don't, you want to not just be a cog in the machine. You want to be a piece of the whole and be conscious of the whole. And a good production too will hopefully try to bring you to that understanding and be conscious of that too. So that's why it's great awareness to spread so people have more of an idea. Sometimes you come in and just are given no perspective whatsoever and it's kind of up to you to find it on your own. It's also a great entry position too if you want to learn how a show works because there's a lot that goes into a show that you don't realize at all like someone that's outside the industry and as soon as you get thrown into the situation you're like oh my gosh there's like you're tracking every every draft of the script, you're tracking every prop, you're tracking every single thing that is on the screen. Someone has to track that. And it's mm-hmm. and that's a great entry position because like they learn how all the pieces fit together, you know? So if you're thinking about getting an animation, that's a good way to like kind of learn. Yeah, and when you know the effect of every creative decision and it'll help you be a better producer because you, you can balance that creative with the practical and say, all right, are there other ways we can solve this problem that don't knock down a hundred other dominoes? If not, then we do it. If there are, then you know it's a maybe more responsible decision to make. So it's a great thing to understand. You also get to know your production people really well and you can see like, okay, that person's going to be an artist and they're going to be a director or they're going to go yeah. far. Like you see it immediately. That's like the best part about like running a show. It's just, you're lucky to have the people you have and then they just go out and do amazing things, you know? Katie's doing VO now too, which is yes, she amazing. Is. Yeah. Yes, she so is. Cool. She, she does a good job at it. 
yeah, she is really great. We had a concept where we were going to be bringing her in potentially as a tech. We didn't get to the episode yet, but there are a couple of shout outs to her in the, in the context of the show. Yeah, this is great. And I just, I can't thank y'all enough for just coming on the show, talking about the episode, giving shout outs to everyone on the crew, because it truly is, you need everyone there, everybody firing on all cylinders. And it really, really shows, not only in the pilot, but just the entire show as a whole. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time. What are y'all currently working on and where can people find you online so that they can follow you and uh, keep up with your careers and your work and all the other cool things that are be coming down the pipeline soon? I'm definitely uh, knee deep in development right now. Very excited about a couple of uh, things that are happening. So I can't talk about them, <laughs> but, but very exciting uh, things happening. You can find me on Instagram at Eric Robles or 4Rs Robles, or you can find me on uh, Twitter at Legit Eric Robles. I'm working with Eric on a couple of those things. He mentioned something that kind of has an interesting spooky tone. We also uh, have been interested in trying to find ways to get into preschool. We have children and, and that's important to us. So we're just sticking our toes in different pools and developing ideas that we think will be interesting. I'm mostly involved right now in the adaptation of a book series called Wings of Fire for WB as an animated miniseries, like a 12-part adaptation of the first five books in that series by Tui Sutherland. And other than that, you can reach me at, at Dan Milano on Twitter. My DMs have been open for a while and I'm just happy to interact with folks and say hello. I'm currently a, the co-executive producer on Animaniacs over at Warner Brothers. And we're say it again, Gabe. Say it again. <laughs> say it again, Gabe. Because <laughs> that's on, Gabe. just yeah, one more time. Huge. <laughs> and we're all really excited. I'm on Instagram too, Gabe Swore. And on Twitter, it's gabe.swore at twitter.com. And, you know, I'm always open to, to just reach out to me. I love talking to new talent and anyone or fans or anything, you know, so it's great. Awesome. Thanks so much. And also there is a link that I will put in the show notes of Glitch Text resources for the public so that you can learn all about not only how the show is made, but just if you're interested in writing, if you're interested in directing, animation, just hearing about the process of making a show, definitely check out all of these resources, you guys. It is a treasure trove of information. So that will be up there as well. So thank you all for being on the show. Thank you to everyone out there listening. And until we meet again, be safe, be well, and we will see you guys later. Contained. <laughs> <laughs>